Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. Okay, on this episode of Fanboy and the Hater, we are talking about the 2018 animated feature film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Previously on the podcast, I had said that this was my second favorite Spider-Man movie of all time. I have changed my mind, and I now believe that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is not only the best Spider-Man movie, it is also the best comic book superhero movie. What do you think, Mike? I mostly agree. Uh, this was a very amazing movie. Uh, as a comic book fan, uh, I love the way that they mixed the animation styles together from the different types of books. Um, and I love the way the movie ended up feeling like a comic book in motion. Um, to me, the, the number one thing that made me enjoy this movie is that it was obvious that the people that were making the movie were fans of the source material. And they, they just loved what they were doing. Yeah, that definitely comes across. I agree. It, it's it, you can definitely feel, and, and you had actually mentioned on a, a previous podcast episode that you think that that happens in general with most animation. Because you, you're going to spend so much time in the animation world, uh, so much time goes into it, you have to love it, or you're just not going to dedicate that to it. Uh, may, maybe like the voice acting side when you're not spending as much time on it, but if you're if you're doing the artwork and you're doing the the, the creative like writing of it, you're, you're going to put that time and detail into it. And, and there's a lot of little things that we'll get into um, later that I think are just details that only fans would think of to put into it. And I, I could easily see, you know, as they're doing it, be like, hey, you know, it would be cool if we did this and, and made it happen. We'll get into that as, when we get to that part. So I think we both agreed on liking the animation styles. That, that was kind of both of our main points that we really enjoyed about this movie. Yeah, I mean, the directors said that they had intended the film to be experienced like you had walked inside a comic book, and it definitely has that feel to it. But like you said, it also has... The animation of this movie is also unique. It's not just an animated movie. It's it's impressive, the level of animation. There's a, a variety of animated styles are effectively mixed uh, together. Uh, even like cartoonish type styles are even effectively used. And the comic book source material is also integrated into the film as well. Like a lot of times when they go to the origin story and background material, they even show animated versions of the actual comic books on the screen. And that's that's what I mean by the mixture of styles also is certain characters or certain book runs have very, very specific artistic styles throughout them. And they took those artistic styles and brought them into this movie based around that character. So whatever that character is doing, that's the animation style that they kind of go with around that character. Most obviously around Spider-Ham because everything was very, very cartoonish, very like Looney Tunes cartoonish. And the the Spider-Man nor the Nicolas Cage Spider-Man. I never know how to say that right. How do you say that word? 
Spider-Man Noir. Yeah, that that's uh, that one's very obvious too because you got the black and white and you got the very almost Dick Tracy-ish feel to it. Um, so yeah, I, I just really enjoyed it. I really like the mixture of it. Even like the Penny Parker stuff too. Um, with it was basically kind of like almost like Japanese magna anime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's it's it's so good the way they mix it all together, and I I really like too when the we're gonna get spoiler heavy, just so everybody knows that when the characters start blipping out, and basically just like squiggle marks, almost like they're mixing all of the animation and colors all together into squigglies. I, I think that was hilarious as well, and well done. Yeah, all of the the visual treatments of of everything in the film is is really really impressive. I mean, as a background, and we'll talk about this as we go through, it's like, it's not really important for you to know the source material, but the Spider-Verse itself has actually been done in both comic books and also some animated series as well. So it's not like it's a brand new idea. You might not be very familiar with Spider-Man. If you're a casual fan, you might just know the live action movies, which have focused, and even the animated series, which have mostly focused on Peter Parker. So you might not know that there actually is a uh, a Spider-Verse, a multiverse of other versions of Spider-Man uh, that has been part of the, the comic book history of the character. Yeah, there's a lot of stories about it, and they, they cross over quite, quite a few times. I am going to throw a little bit of a trivia to you real quick. Which Spider-Man character in this movie is from the standard Marvel universe that we're, we're used to? I guess I would have to say the Chris Pine version, the blonde Peter Parker. That's from Miles' universe. Incorrect. It's actually Schlubby Spider-Man. He's my favorite Spider-Man. In, he's my favorite Peter Parker in the movie. But, but why is Schlubby Spider-Man? So it, there's a couple things that kind of hint to it. So when the collider goes off, if you look at one of the computer screens, when the, it's initially going off and they're making the connections to the different versions of Earth, it actually lists which versions you're connecting to. And the main one that we're used to is, is Earth-616, and that was actually listed there. So we know one of the universes they're connecting to is the main Marvel universe. And then when they go through and do the introduction for Peter Parker, the schlubby Peter Parker, he says he's been Spider-Man for 22 years. So that puts him at roughly 36 years old. So it's, it's the main Spider-Man we're used to seeing in the future. That makes sense because the Miles Morales universe is not the primary Spider-Man universe. You know, from like the Spider-Verse and the comics and animated series, you know, Miles Morales was from a different Earth and Spider-Man died on that Earth. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I should have got your trivia question correct because that's obviously... It's just that slubby Spider-Man is just that aspect. And we I got jumping around here a bit too. It's like we haven't really seen more of the primary Spider-Man in live action movies, at least. We keep going back to the same basic time period of he got bitten by the radioactive spider as a teenager, it became Spider-Man, and we never really get to see him get very old in any of the live action material. Obviously, the comic books. But in the comic books, even, not really. I, I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but the latest I've ever seen him is maybe mid to late 20s. So Schlubby's still in the future, like 10 years from what I've seen in the books. It's hard to imagine Schlubby Spider-Man as being the main Spider-Man that we're used to seeing 
But then if you think about it in that context of, you know, everything that he's been through and then fast forward 10 years and everything's kind of falling apart, you can see him being that way. Oh, yeah, it's definitely believable. It probably wouldn't be very fun for people to see that period of Spider-Man. It's very realistic. But yeah, earlier period that is focused on in the comics and the movies is, I guess, for lack of a better term, the more interesting Peter Parker. (laughs) Uh, But again, part of this movie, it's why it's so great is that it's not just about Peter Parker, and that's what makes it even more interesting to me to get the other spider people. And again, going back to the animation, being able to mix the different animation styles together to, to really show there's a Spider-Man for everybody. Yeah, I mean, there was a... It, it's going back a few years. I mean, this movie came out in 2018. It's been done in comic books and animation before, but last night before we recorded this, I actually watched uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which is the 2012 animated series and there actually was a four-part spider-verse in that animated show where they did actually do a mini story of this i mean it wasn't everybody we we got miles morales and we got uh spider noir and we got some of the other spiders which were i guess originally in the original draft of the movie but they had to take some of them out but it had sort of a similar feel to it but one of the things that was nice about that is they did that same thing where the animation styles changed dramatically uh, from different parts of those. It was like a four-part arc in that show, and they had radically different animation styles to to reflect the characters that they were switching to in the the different universes of Spider-Man. One thing, too, I'm, I'm looking up to know exactly how many, but when you get into the book run, I mean, there was, I want to say, like 40, 50-plus Spider-Men. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more than, than what we saw in the uh, movie. So there's a Spider-Verse thing, there's Secret Wars. Yeah, there's a lot more to Spider-Man and a lot more versions of Spider-Man and Spider-People uh, than even what we saw in this movie. So, yeah, this is the first time we've probably seen it. Well, in a movie especially, but even in the animation that they've done, they have it only touched the, barely scratched the surface of all of the different Spider-People that are across the multiverse. Actually, one of the main Spider-Men is actually, at the time in the book series, Spider-Man's body had been taken over by Dr. Octopus's brain, and they're calling him Superior Spider-Man. And so he was basically just trying to improve upon Spider-Man and Peter Parker in every way possible and prove that he's a better person. Yeah, even the even the plot of the Spider Verse arc and Ultimate Spider Man that I was talking about the the villain was the Goblin and he was going across the multiverse to steal Spider Man's DNA to inject himself with it so he could have Spider Man's power become Spider Goblin and be a better version of both Spider Man and the Goblin and be unstoppable. Yeah, and in the, in the books it's kind of similar to that, but it's actually like a family of basically god beings almost that hunt spiders and um, basically ingest their essence and that's how they sustain themselves and so they are uh, similar to the way that the goblin was hunting the spider people this family members of this family were hunting spider people anyways it's a good tangent but yeah let's get back to to our to the actual movie itself so this again especially for for mainstream audiences this might have been the first time that they even got into the idea that there was someone other than a peter parker spider-man And it's so, one of the things that's fantastic about it for me is the great diversity and representation in the cast in in the storyline. So it's not just Peter Parker, 
white guy Spider-Man. We have Miles Morales, you know, black uh, Latino Spider-Man. We have two different female uh, spider people and other, even the other male version of Spider-Man from an older era, the Spider-Noir character. And then, of course, I, I thought it was funny. Spider-Ham is this kind of uh, just a Looney Tunes, like you said, type character, but it's also that other aspect of uh, Spider-Man brought in. So seeing all of that and in, in the diversity, not only in the spider people, but even in the great diversity and representation in the rest of the cast made this one of the most, I guess, diverse comic book superhero movies in recent memory possibly i don't know how true it is it's been a while since i've looked at it but they said the next one they're gonna do is is gonna be almost completely female led based around the spider gwen uh, i guess in this movie she calls herself spider woman in the books that i've seen and stuff they call her ghost spider and then but the titles are always spider gwen yeah, there was Ghost Spider, and then there was a Spider Gwen. The Spider Man Ultimate Ultimate Spider Man thing uh, took us to an all female like Spider Multiverse where it was Spider Girl, but even like all of the villains were women too. So it was like even like the Goblin was a woman, J Jonah Jameson was a woman. <laughs> it's like it's like everything was female, and it was like a, a heavy like making fun of Spider Man. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> And the reason I kind of point that out and I, I, I bring that up is it almost bothered. That's like the one thing in this movie that actually bothered me was that her calling herself Spider-Woman. Was like, Spider-Woman's a completely different character. Ah, I gotcha. Yeah, you're right. Spider-Woman is a completely different Whose character. Whose powers are nothing spider-based and it doesn't make sense in why she calls herself Spider-Woman, but she does. I'm sure they give a reasoning somewhere, but I, I'm not super familiar with that character. Yeah, it might have been more of, of the whole idea that Spider-Girl... Well, 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 but Spider Girl's another different character too. <laughs> Spider Girl is another different character, and like I said, that's actually the Petra Parker one that was in Ultimate Spider-Man, and that is a different character. I was just thinking of it on a, a on a simpler gender equality level of having a Spider Man and Spider Girl. Yeah, it seemed like it was lesser, so they might have just called her Spider Woman. Oh yeah, yeah, I I agree. It's probably why they did it, but at the same time, I don't see why they couldn't just called her Ghost Spider because that's what she goes by. But uh, uh, as a quick aside as well, yeah, I, I know you said Petra Parker being Spider-Girl. There, there's actually a, a Spider-Girl still a different character besides that one. But we don't have to get into that. That's that's a, a nerd depth that we don't need to get into. Is, is there anything else about the animation styles you want to talk about? I didn't see it this way. when it. I saw the movie when it was in the theaters. I'm not a fan of the format in general. I'm talking about 3D format when I'm saying the format in general. The depth of the photorealism in the animation is incredibly impressive to me. But it was also one of the things that the directors had said that it's like it's one of those movies that they said almost needs to be watched in 3D. And there are several scenes where it's like, you know what, this might have been one of the few movies where I, I might have wanted to see in 3D. I did not see it in 3D in the theater, though, especially when they're on top of the building and looking down on the street. You can definitely tell that the way that that is set out, it looks great in regular, whatever the opposite of regular vision, <laughs> not 3D. But I could see how 3D would have been like really amazing to see. Some I, I think you scenes. just drop a D. I think it's just 2D. But yeah, I, I agree. And that's there's a lot of times where when watching this movie, I, I, I can see where it's 3D. I'm like, oh, I kind of want to see what it looks like. But historically, watching things in 3D hurts my eyes. And so I just don't even try anymore. Yeah, I was never a fan of it 
in, in general. So yeah, but I could see where it might have even been worth at least once watching this in, in 3D. The only other thing I would say about the, the animation style, it goes back to the whole feels like you're watching a comic book or you've watched inside a comic book is the integration of the comic panels and the notes a great great visual texture to the film like it happens for the first time when miles gets his powers it then kind of like because even miles himself the character goes to the spider-man comics to try to understand what's happening to him but even before he does that comic book type stuff starts happening on the screen you start seeing like his his internal monologue is on the screen in text boxes. I like the little joke that he puts in there too. He's like, "Why are my thoughts so loud?" <laughs> and all of the stuff that happens there, it, it, there's a lot of and like sound effects go by the screen and words. So it really becomes like, yeah, he just became a comic book superhero, and the movie just stepped inside of a comic book. And that was one of the other. They they come back to it a couple of other times. That was one of the other aspects of the the animation that were really awesome for me. Uh, which again, I've I've said this before on a, on our podcast for many reasons. I think that animation is just the best medium for comic book superhero movies. I agree. But not only that in in general, but the way that they integrated actual comic book elements into the animation was just amazing. I agree. And even and, and again going back to the the people making this had to have been fans. There's little things um like uh when they steal the bagel and they're running away and he turns and throws the bagel at one of the scientists and it's very very small and it, it's hard to see but when it hits you get the little like the impact lines that come off of it and then the word bagel comes out. It's very very easy to miss but it's there. It's just those little it's it's that attention to detail that makes this movie fantastic. And as kind of a joke to the animation style as well, I really like towards the end or at the end when Spider-Ham is saying goodbye and he gives him his mallet and he's like, it'll fit in any pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and then I like, I mean, they didn't do it all throughout, but they, they did start doing like the inner monologue became dialogue boxes yeah. on the screen. Like when when Miles decides to run inside the building to help Peter, he's like, "What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing?" And it's even on the screen. It's like, "What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing?" <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. The movie used like a ridiculous number of animators. Oh, I'm sure over like 140 animators worked on the movie. I hope a lot of them, if not all of them, come back for the next one because they did a fantastic job. Yeah, I guess it's going to be another two years. I think spring of 2022 is when the sequel is going to come out. Well, that takes a long time to do animation. That's the only downside to using animation as the medium for these stories. It takes longer than live action. But you can do so much more with it. In comic books, they're doing things that just aren't physically possible. And trying to do those things in live action, it's very hard to do do it and make it look believable. MCU's been doing a pretty good job of it, but there's still a lot of things like, well, that's not quite what the character would do, but they couldn't do what the character from the books would do because it just wouldn't fit live action. But you can do those things in animation. Yeah, like there are scenes in this movie, like the when Peter gets knocked out by the Venom strike and they get spider-webbed to the train and they're being dragged through the street, that would have been really hard to do in live action without looking really stupid. Right, especially the part dragging his face on the ground. Then he picks him up by his hair. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that sequence, you know, it's like 
worked perfectly in animation. Uh, and like you said, even times where like some of the things that they do that are very physics defying kind of looks weird in live action, but just looks very fluid and natural uh, in animation. And they, they were able to pull that off. Right, exactly. The only other thing I guess animated related would be the other thing I think is just easier is the fact that casting live action comic book superhero movies has that difficulty of you need the actor to look the part. And that just goes out the window with animation. Right. Like you don't need to worry about that. Like you don't need to worry about, you know, does Jake Johnson physically look like he could play Spider-Man? Who cares? All we need is his voice and you can draw him however you want. Chris Pine is actually an action movie physique, but he's actually too jacked to play Spider-Man. But who cares? We're just using his voice. You can draw his version of Spider-Man however you want. Same thing with even like the the actors who bring authenticity to the diversity in the cast. Like the character, the actor who play, who voices Miles is both too old and not the right body type to play a Spider-Man. Who cares? We're just using his voice. Yeah, and, and on top of that too, I mean, just generally speaking, superheroes have body types that just aren't physically possible uh, a lot of times. Like, I, I'm always going to point out too, like, I I absolutely love Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Even though he's playing a Thor character that is not really, it doesn't really fit the Thor character from the books, but he just does what he does so well, it doesn't matter. It is built as he is, he's still just not nearly big enough to portray Thor the way that Thor is portrayed in the books. A lot of times they're unrealistically depicted in the books and in uh, in animation that live action could never do that. The only, and I think we had talked about this at one point off mic, the only character in this movie that was a little bit off was Kingpin. Yeah, yeah, that was actually one of my, I, I guess the other down thing for me is I, you know, I, I really like the what they did with the character of Kingpin, but they just made him so behemothly big. And, and maybe it's just from that universe, and I'm not as familiar with that universe. But the Kingpin that I'm familiar with, it's he blends in as being a businessman. And he just, he looks fat. Not Jack, he looks fat. As, you know, he's the CEO, he's a businessman. And that's, that's why he's never arrested and taken in or tied to the crimes, because he's a businessman. And he kind of looks that part but then underneath that he's actually incredibly strong it's just you can't tell because he looks fat he just looked like a really large man yeah and this one they made him look like he's eight and a half feet tall and 500 pounds and he's and and it's all upper body it's not he doesn't look fat he looks just extremely built and gigantic and yeah, like that's what I mean. Is like the 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 kingpin that I'm used to is he he looks more as weird as it is to say more realistic. He just looks like a big dude that you could imagine in real life. Yeah, I mean he's not made eight foot tall. He's like six two or something. Like again, I can't help but think of Vincent D'Onofrio in Daredevil. Oh God, he did so well. Is that? I mean, he did so well with the character, but just his physical presence. Like that's what I think of as kingpin. Yeah, he was he was perfect for that part. Yeah, uh, but yeah, in this one, and again, maybe it's because it's the Miles Morales universe, Kingpin looked cartoonishly out of proportion. But I think they did well with the character as well, though. The the obsession and, and the voice that, it, that uh, was it Liv Freeber? I'm bad at pronouncing things. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The the voice and the characterization and the story were great, but the one thing that kind of it didn't pull me out of the movie, but it just kind of annoyed me a little bit. So it's like I wish that they had toned down the way they drew him yeah. a bit. But again, I think that's out of that universe. It's just interesting that they chose that one version. It's okay. I, I think part of that too is they had to make it believable that he could kill Spider-Man in one hit. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. So that that's understandable. That that might have been why they made that particular choice. Yeah. Well, uh, moving on. I one big thing that I really wanted to talk about is uh, I'm kind of calling it the heart of Spider-Man. And one thing that I, I really like about this movie is they really they they got the feeling of Spider-Man of of kind of what what drives Spider-Man. They they got it right. They really got it right. And just kind of the weight that that the spider heroes always feel. Like everything everything depends on them succeeding and they just cannot give up no matter what happens. They and they they say it over and over in the movie. Spider-Man always gets back up. No matter what, always gets back up. And that's kind of, that's draws straight from the books. I mean, there's so many times, even in like in big team-ups and stuff, or, or a lot of stories, at the end of the story, Spider-Man is the most beat-up person, like even worse than the villains. And he's barely making, I mean, he's half dead by the end of it, but he's still kind of making a quip and, and still kind of joking about it. Be like, can I just take a nap now? And then he'll collapse or something like that. And they really drove that home in this movie, and they they really got that feel of you know, got the weight of the world, gonna do whatever it takes, always gonna get back up, but still making the jokes. And we'll get into jokes a little bit later, but they just they just really got that uh, nailed down in this movie to me, and how it's the same in the different versions of Spider-Man, e- even though they're very different characters, that drive is still the same. Yeah, the the drive is definitely still the same. The blend of the funny slash serious uh, was definitely there, especially in the Peter Parker characters. Like the two different Peter Parkers had that um, the quippiness, the one liners were, were executed perfectly by both Chris Pine and Jake Johnson. The other thing I also liked about the Peter Parker characters is the Peter Parker Spider Man duality was also well done. I mean, everything in the movie happens very briefly because so much is happening in the story Mm -hmm. nothing gets a lot of time miles gets the most focus and rightfully so but you really get that whole idea of you know peter had both peters had a life outside of spider-man yeah and there was peter parker and then there was spider-man when he put on the mask and again it wasn't a lot of time spent on that but i thought that they nailed that duality really well yeah Especially with, with Schlubby Spider-Man, because he's kind of like more just like, yeah, I've given up being Spidey. You know, I'm trying to be Peter Parker and my life's kind of screwed because of that. <laughs> right. Well, that also goes into that character of Spider-Man has tried to give up being Spider-Man over and over. That's kind of one of the main things. He's he's always half on the edge of wanting to give up Spider-Man, being Spider-Man, because of the weight. And because he's like, man, I've, I've done this for so long. I'm doing this from for what people hate me uh, people still end up getting hurt you know am i really helping anything and then something big happens and he steps in and saves the world he's like oh yeah that's why i'm spider-man because nobody else can do this they talk about that a lot in this movie 
Yeah, like even like at the end when after Miles' uncle Aaron is killed and he's like, you know, you guys don't understand. And like one's like, we're probably the only people who do. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that whole aspect of like the weight of being a superhero and that aspect, I think, was very well portrayed throughout it. So, yeah, that was very well done. There's not a lot to talk about with it. I feel like, but it's a very important thing that, again, that's one of the main reasons this movie works is to get the characters right. Yeah, and and that's what, and to that note is like the, the recurring in-joke throughout, or joke and in-joke throughout it is the origin stories. Mm-hmm. And like, it's both like a great in-joke about how the other like live action, especially Spider-Man movies, have just redone the Peter Parker origin story over and over again, with the exception of the Tom Holland movies. But also that origin story, okay, let's do this one last time, was also a great way to just quickly and seamlessly introduce a variety of different takes on the Spidey character across comics without needing to dwell on it for a long time, but still establish them effectively as different characters. Right, right. Again, I'm going to come back to what we mentioned earlier, but the very beginning, the uh, the introduction of the the blonde Peter Parker, where he kind of goes through all the different variations. I, I love how they kind of touch on, yeah, I even recorded a Christmas album, which is actually a thing that happened. And like throughout the thing, like he's humming the, the Spider-Man theme song from the was it the 60s version. Yeah, the late the late 60s original one. They even have that like the opening like crawl of the mm-hmm. late 60s Spider-Man. It's briefly on the screen and you hear the original Spider-Man theme song. Yeah. And then on top of that, and I don't know how many people catch it, Oh, I caught it. I don't know if you caught it. When they introduce Kingpin and he's walking through clicking his pen, he's humming that song. Yes. And I, I thought that was really, really an interesting way to introduce Kingpin doing that as well. So there's, oh man, uh, there's so many little things. Again, we'll we'll talk about the humor of it later, but there's so many little things that are easy to miss. The other things that I liked just in general, more into like the storytelling type of stuff is... The, I really like that the, the MacGuffin, which they refer to as a goober. <laughs> I love that. I love that it gets broken because, again, that whole idea, like even as you know, Peter B. Parker says, like, oh, there's always, a, there's always a goober. There's always a key that does this or that. Like, there's always there. So the fact that it got broken and then they even mocked, like, some of the other, like, traditional elements of like storybook stories too. Mm-hmm. Like when they're in the, when Miles and Peter are in the vent and they're listening in on uh, Doc Ock and Kingpin. And Kingpin. I was like, just about to, to mention this. Yep. I was like, watch. He could have said, you have 24 hours. And then he's like, you have 24 hours. So, <laughs> so all of that like little stuff of like even like mocking a little bit of parts and even like even uh, some type of it, even with like a harder edge, like when Miles tries to convince Peter. Peter B. Parker to help him. It's like, yo, when great power comes, don't you complete that line. I'm sick of hearing that line. <laughs> right. And that's because, like, we're all sick of hearing that line to a certain extent because it gets overdone in a lot of the Spider-Man movies. So I love how they integrated a lot of that stuff and, and were able to mock it without, like, not, like, making fun of it like they don't like it, but, like, as fans would mock it and as you're, you're in on the joke and it makes it funny. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I think uh I think calling it the Goober was was just it was just a great name to come up with to call it. And the fact that they keep referring to it and even the other characters start referring to it as as the Goober. Yeah, I, I think that was great and uh, there there's so many little in jokes 
kind of poking at the comic books. Well, it's also one of those things, too. It, it's, as I'll say, when we get later to like a conclusion, it's like the movie really is great for all audiences. Like, you don't need to know a lot of the nerdy Spider-Man stuff that we're talking about in order to appreciate this movie. But if you do, if you are a little bit into the nerdy side of Spider-Man, there's lots of little Easter eggs like that that will make you laugh or make you smile. Right. But they're, they go by quickly. If you miss them, it's okay. Doesn't take anything away from your enjoyment in the movie, but when you see them, you're like, "Ah, oh, I see what you did there. That was awesome." Yeah, I I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything really bad about this movie. I think everybody generally likes it, but you can kind of tell uh, people that loved this movie. I think were fans of the character in the books to start with, because those little things take this from being a good movie to being a great movie. It, again, going back to the people being fans of the movie making it. Because that attention to detail is really what did it, in my opinion. And it's it's the attention to detail from a fan perspective. Yes, and the fact that you can put so much stuff like that in the movie and it doesn't feel like it's weighed down by it or you're not overwhelmed by it. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible balance that they somehow managed to achieve that almost seems like it's not replicable because of, of how well it's done. The other thing from a storytelling perspective that I really enjoyed about the movie was not only was there great good characterization and depth of characters with the spider people, but even the bad guys had better depth to them. Like the bad guys had plans and motivations that weren't like just evil for evil sake or for the evil for for the sake of being evil. Like, I know the Kingpin character from the comics and stuff. That Yeah, he is a bad dude. He is evil. But in this movie, his primary motivation was he's trying to save his dead family. Like, he's not building the Super Collider or, or investing in the Super Collider because he wants to destroy the multiverse. Right. He wants to try to get his dead wife and son back. Well, and that's on par for Spider-Man villains in general. And I think that's all things... To like about Spider-Man, I think the reason that Spider-Man has always stayed at the top as far as popularity uh, for comic books is his, his rogues gallery. Uh, very similar to, to Batman having just a very ex extensive rogues gallery that a lot of them just really stand out. Spider-Man has the same thing. And I think a big part of that is because they made them like real people. Like Sandman was trying to, he became villainous because he was trying to save his daughter. Otto Octavius, Doc Ock, just wanted to be taken seriously as a scientist and wanted to create and build things and was kept being denied because of the way he was going about it. And so he had to turn to villainy in order to conduct his science experiments. That's kind of just the ongoing theme in Spider-Man villainy is there's, there's a reason, there's a very human reason why this person became not necessarily evil, but just doing bad things. Yeah, like even Doc Connor, the lizard, he was trying to actually help, not just himself, actually even help others more than himself. So he wasn't doing bad things to do bad things. And even even when he did bad things, though, it wasn't really him. He became mind, he became mindless when he became the lizard. He couldn't he couldn't control what he was doing anymore. Right, but even like even like the more minor characters, like Miles' uncle Aaron. Yeah, he's a bad guy. He's doing crime for money. So yeah, he's not a good person in the sense that you chose to go to a life of crime and become a professional criminal and 
be okay with being essentially a contract killer. But you could still see him before we found out that he was the Prowler. We saw him as being a cool uncle to Miles, and we did see him make the human decision that he wasn't going to, even though he was okay with killing a kid, he wasn't going to kill his nephew. Right. So there was depth even to that character. Yeah, and I saw him as more of just a mercenary. I, I didn't necessarily see him as a villain for villainy's sake. He's a mercenary, and he's hired to do a job. Yeah, exactly. What I mean is he's a contract criminal. He's not a bad guy doing bad things because that's it. I mean, yeah, he could have made different life choices, but still, yeah, he's a mercenary or a contract criminal. So, yeah, it's, but still definitely more depth than in humanity, too. Again, like you said, it happens a lot in Spider-Man, but a lot of other movies, not not even just superhero comic book type stuff, a lot of movies just paint the bad guys too when one-dimensionally. Right. That you realize, like, why are these people doing this? It just it seems like they're just being bad for the sake of being bad or being evil because they think they are evil, where in reality that's, like, not really the right way to, to paint or to draw, even when it's, again, even when it's not animation. It's not not the right way to draw the bad guys character-wise. Right, and that was one of the big issues with Venom in Spider-Man 3. I mean, there's a long back history of why both Eddie Brock and the Venom symbiote hated Spider-Man, and they just kind of skimmed over it quick in order to get the character in place, and it just didn't work. You know, on top of they just didn't do the Venom character well. But this, there, there wasn't enough of that backstory that should have been there. It just wasn't there. To me, that's the big reason why that movie failed miserably. And again, it's another reason, another thing about this movie about how they were able to effectively establish good backstories and character motivations without having spent a lot of time on it. Yeah, like that's one of the other things that happens in other movies that try to get that right. They just either don't give the audience enough credit or they just try to over-explain things and they just don't get the depth of characterization right, either by not doing it right at all or trying to go too far to to draw those people as as more believable characters. Right. And this, this movie is able to do it without spending a lot of time on any of it. One thing, and I just remembered because I was thinking about the villains and I was thinking about the Scorpion character in this movie. And how we don't really get a backstory for him, but it becomes pretty obvious through the way he works. But going back to the animation styles and those text boxes, again, it's very, very easy to miss, but it's it's a direct adaptation from uh, the comic books. He speaks in Spanish, and then a box comes up with a translation, and then there's a little box underneath that says translated from Spanish. And that's exactly how, what happens in, in the books. If something's translated, it kind of comes up with, with brackets on, on either end, and then there's an asterisk, and then there's another box of the asterisk that says translated from whatever language, and then has like an editor's note, like signature on it. And they again, it's very easy to miss, but I love that they actually put that in this. One of the other pseudo-animation-related comments is that we've talked in previous episodes about how People have a tendency to just think that animation is just for kids, mm -hmm. and therefore it can't doesn't have the capacity to tell a more serious or more adult stories. Death actually plays a pretty major part in the entire story of the movie. We already briefly touched on Fisk's family, but you know Peter Parker in both Miles and Gwen's universes dies. Uncle Ben 
Aunt May and Peter B. Parker's universe, and then even Spider-Bot. So, I mean, death is a pretty serious topic, and it's woven throughout the entire story, and it's done very well. And again, for me, it was another example of, you know, animation can tell serious stories without being too kid-friendly. Well, in the Spider-Bot universe, it was her dad. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Her dad, but then also in this movie itself, the Spider-Bot also dies. Oh, 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 right, right, right. Yeah, her character's major death was her father. Right. But I was also referring to the fact that her, her robot gets destroyed. Yeah, but I think, didn't they make mention that she could rebuild it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not the same type of death. Yeah, the, her her character's death was her father. Yeah, yeah. Just like Spider-Gwen's character's death was her friend Peter. Right. But yeah, for me, yeah, the spider bot was not quite a death because she can just rebuild it because she has the spider. But yeah, it was just still a then that there were that there were stakes. Yeah, and, and the emotional depth that they go into, like when Uncle Aaron dies and you see Miles' dad crying over the body, and, and just the emotional depth that that they give the characters when dealing with the with the death. Whereas in other animations and stuff, when, when there's a death, they kind of gloss over it. They don't really linger on it because they want to move on because it's for kids. Yeah, because like in other kids' stories, Aaron wouldn't have died. He just would have been wounded and been arrested. Or he would have died, but it would have been like off screen, and they wouldn't have lingered on it at all. But the fact that they actually spent time showing that death, and they, they spent time showing how, like you said, the different characters had whoever their close relative or whatever that died that led them to becoming the spider person, how that still weighs on them years later. I agree with that. And then also even the fact that like, even that uncle Aaron even gets like to make like a dying speech to also allow them to have some type of closure Mm -hmm. and say, you know, miles, you're the best of us. And you know, that whole thing that may add more emotional depth to that scene was important. And it was more subtle, but even, like, the whole idea that, like, Peter B. Parker doesn't want to go see Aunt May because his Aunt May was dead. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't think I can do this. And he tries to walk away. And, and like, Spider-Gwen, like, web grabs him and pulls him back. Right. So even that whole thing is, like, you know, having to face, like, I know you're not my Aunt May and I'm not your Peter. But there was a nice little moment there for them both of we're grieving and you're not the person I'm grieving, but it's still kind of nice. Right, right. And even like even before like Aunt May opens the door, it's like, you know, you're really nice, but I can't deal with any more fans today. Yeah. Because she just expected it was a bunch of people wearing a spider costume coming by to, you know, share their condolences about Peter. Yeah. And even, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a death, but also the, the scene where uh, he, he meets up with Mary Jane at the party. And she asks him for bread, and he just kind of basically goes on his huge apologetic speech about <laughs> bread. <laughs> yeah, because that was more like the death of their relationship. But yeah, he goes, that comes back around at the end, and he can go back to his MJ. But the MJ in in Miles' universe is sad because, yeah, she lost her husband. Yeah. But but just, I guess I took the, not just about the death, but just emotion in general. how Just how deep the emotion is throughout this whole movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, even like the, the family, Miles's family connection and his dynamic with his dad mm-hmm. and his uncle. I mean, there's a lot of depth of emotion there, too. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a very, it's definitely not it's, not, it's not like it's so serious that kids can't see it. 
but it's just it's obviously it's not kitty it's not kid oriented mm-hmm. you know again animations as i always maybe needlessly defend it you know it's not just for kids it can be have serious and, and depth to the stories right and that also actually kind of goes into comic books in general and how they've progressed they're they're very much not for kids i mean they're still like you said kids can read them but they're not made just for kids anymore they're They've got really heavy, deep storylines now. A lot of emotion put into them. The only other thing I guess I would say that's somewhat related, not to animation, but to the comics, I guess, is, and I have a tendency, I don't know if this was intentional, I have a tendency to look for metal layers and things or add metal layers to things that may actually not have been intended to be there. But for me, the, the Peter B. Parker, the older, fatter, schlubby, more world-weary version of Spider-Man, for me was also just a great metaphor for how comic book superhero characters, at least in the way that they've been depicted in especially live-action films, need to evolve more instead of just getting remade repeatedly. We talk about this in, uh, during our Batman episode, that there's a lot more Bat stories and much more depth to the Batverse and the Bat family than the stories that we keep getting seen in the, the live-action movies. And like you just said, the comic books have gotten very serious and very a lot of depth of emotion and a lot of depth of stories. But unfortunately, especially in live-action movies, we're not getting much of that. So for that, Peter B. Barker for me was sort of an example of almost an, a personification of superhero fatigue. I have superhero fatigue too, but it's because they're not doing more superhero stories. They're doing the same stuff over and over again. Taking that another route, though, uh, they did a very good job of it in this movie, but I can also very much see if they stray too far off, then it becomes a different character. And that's something I think I also mentioned it, I think it was the Batman episode where I talk about we're fine with different stories as long as the character's right. In this movie, I think I think they nailed it. I mean, that, that Peter B. Parker, you could definitely see that he fits the Spider-Man character still, but it's another, But like you said, it's kind of another take on it with still being true to the character. Oh, yeah. Like, I wasn't trying to say that we need new takes on characters. I'm saying that there are... You can stay true to the comic books and the source material because they actually offer more depth Mm -hmm. to the character. So I was not saying that I want them to do something different than what the source material does. I want them to actually use more of the source material. Right, right. For all of the Spideys in the movie, it demonstrates how the comics have more stories about the same characters and also better stories about the same characters that can be told beyond what the limited stories we get, especially in the live action movies. Right, and I, I guess I didn't articulate it well. Where, where I'm, what I'm saying is, though, is they just have to, it's difficult because you have to be able to expand on that without taking too much away or, or moving in a too far of a direction with the character. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. It's kind of like, like we had said back in Batman, the fact that they kind of keep going back to the beginning over and over again, whereas if they had just stayed true to the character but they just used the new movies to just, continue telling the story more but it would have been a different take that just would have been continuing the story but especially with batman is probably the easiest example they just keep going back to the beginning again right and then we have to basically cover the same ground we've already already covered 
because they feel like they need to do that because it's a different live action actor playing him. And then we don't never really get more of the story and go further. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to liken that back to actually what I mentioned earlier about Thor and the MCU. That Thor is nowhere near the comic book Thor parts of it here and there, but I mean, it's, it's a very different character. And if I stop and think about it too long, I actually start to not like the Thor character in the MCU. So I have to quickly stop thinking about it because I do really like that character. I just have to think of it as a different Thor character. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I agree that the, the Thor, I don't want to say it's a dumbed down version, but yeah, it's not very true to the, to the material, but it's also one of those things that even in like the comics or the animated series, there were many times where Thor kind of felt out of place because he was very different than the other characters. And I guess they wanted to soften that to make it more fluid in the Marvel movies. I think the issue is live action wise, if you do the Thor character the way that he's written in the books, it's not an entertaining movie. And so they had to adjust the character to make the movie entertaining. Yeah, that's probably a better way of what I was just trying to say. His character is much more serious, much more... He's very somber and in his head, and he's kind of the depression that he's in. If he wasn't joking or jokey about that depression, I mean, that's that Thor character, he's he's feels the weight of everything that's going on all the time. He's very... Very serious, very somber, very inner. Like he's just in his head all the time. And again, trying to do that in the movies, that it, it would work really well if he was part of a large cast, like in Avengers, but standalone, it wouldn't work. Moving on. Any other aspects of uh, the story? I mean, I, I have one more point, but any other things we haven't touched on in terms of the movie itself? I just really like the I just really like the way they told the story. The way it flowed, it flowed really well. They didn't spend a lot of time on things that didn't need a lot of time. Uh, I like how even in it they referenced the books. So like when he's trying to figure out, you know, hey, I got these spider powers. What do I do? And he starts looking in the the Spider-Man origin book, and he's like, oh, that's exactly what's happening to me. And, and just little things like that, um, I, I think was fantastic. Uh, again, the, the attention to detail on a lot of stuff. I like the, the spider cave or the spider shed because it had like all of the different like outfits over the course of all of the different runs of comics. Even coming back to the whole, hey, Peter, look, a cape. Because <laughs> earlier in the movie, it was like, Spider-Man doesn't wear a cape. That's disrespectful. Take that off. And again, just the little details, like when they're running away with the computer, and he's like, well, I got good news. We don't need the monitor. And he throws the monitor away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's lots of really good uh, comedy throughout. Because even though, yeah, the slubby Peter Parker is playing more of the dire, more somber one, he still sort of has a, like, remembers, you know, who he is and stuff like that. Even when they're, like, crawling through the vent and, like, Miles had come to help him and he stops for a second, he's like, huh, most of the people I meet in the workplace are trying to kill me. This is kind of a refreshing change of pace. Yeah, I actually I wrote that down specifically because I wanted to make mention of that. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was fantastic. There's a lot of like little things like that 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 really help make you appreciate. Again, it always came back to that humor and that jokey type stuff that was always part of that funny, serious duality with the Spider-Man character, especially Peter Parker. 
having that. I mean, even even the other characters, it wasn't just the Peter Parker stuff. I mean, there was like quippy jokes and stuff. Like when when they finally find out that when they meet Gwen and find out that she's Spider Gwen, and like Miles is like, "I like your haircut. You don't get to like my haircut." And then at the end, do I get to like your haircut now? <laughs> <laughs> I guess one thing too, storyline, I really like how they progress the Miles character. So like, you know, he's accidentally doing the Venom strike and accidentally turning invisible and he can't control it. And and they even joke about that. He's like, he can turn invisible. See, I can't do it on command. He can't do it on command, but he does a really cool Venom blast. Show us. I can't do that. on. He can't do that on command either. What else can you do? Just those two things. <laughs> But then at the end, when, when they're at the collider and he shows up and they're like, look, it's Miles, he's here and he's doing it on command. I, I just think the way that they just kind of keep rolling through um, the progression and they, they make those references back and they tie the whole thing together. Again, those details that only fans are really going to pay attention to put into it. Yeah, I mean, I like the evolution of the character. I mean, the fact that the Miles Morales Spider-Man has those two powers that Peter Parker doesn't have. You know, the invisibility and the venom strike. That's nice, too, because it also shows another evolution of the character. But even if you don't know the Spider-Man story, the, the resonance that we just talked about, about how, like, when they leave him behind, and, like, Peter Parker's like, you want to come with us? Then, you know, venom strike me right now. Turn invisible on command so that you can get past me can't do it right that's why we have to leave you behind and then they come back and he shows that he he could do that or even the thing where like when they're in that when his dorm room and peter is holding him by his shirt and he's hanging there it's like like do it and then later at the end he holds peter by his shirt before he drops him into the his wormhole to go home and like and even as he's following it's like well done kid so that came full circle the other part that i found hilarious was the shoulder touch. So like earlier in the movie when like Uncle Aaron is trying to teach him the shoulder touch. Hey. And then he, he does it disastrously with Gwen, which is how it gets stuck in her, her hair and the whole hair joke. But at the end, what he, the way that he beats Kingpin is like, hey, do you know the shoulder touch? And Kingpin's like, what? And he goes, and he touches like, hey. And he just venom strikes him. <laughs> <laughs> which is like i thought that was that was great resonance too for for ver for multiple callbacks to earlier in the movie to that was really good so like even if you don't know the spider-man stuff that the story itself just had good resonance with earlier uh beats being picked back up yeah another fantastic joke i was going to talk about later but it kind of fits in the storyline as well i mentioned earlier how he's kind of following the comic books and he's like, okay, he learned how to, in the books, at least it shows, he, he learned how to web swing or, or learn his power by jumping off this building. And he finds that building, he runs to the top, and he looks down, and then he runs back down, <laughs> looks at the picture, looks over the smaller building, and then goes over the smaller building. Yeah, that, that really hit home to me. I, 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 that was one of the best jokes throughout the whole movie, I think, and, and really fit the character as well. Yeah, I agree. So we, we can get to the humor. We, we keep jumping to it. The one last thing that I had about storytelling was just, it was just a really great, it was like the closing message of the movie. It was just really good. Because throughout the, the movie, every time we had an origin story, it was one of those like, I'm the only Spider-Man. At the end, Miles is like, anyone can wear the mask. You can wear the mask. If you didn't know that before, I hope you do now. That great message um, that, that sort of the ending tone of the movie. And he even says, like, I'm Spider-Man. 
but I'm not the only one. Not by a long shot. Yeah, and I think that also kind of fits back to something else I wanted to mention was uh, the Stan Lee cameo here where he's like, yeah, we were friends, you know. And then then when he when he buys a costume, he's like, I hope it fits. And he's like, it always fits. Eventually. eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a really cool interaction. Yeah, that, that was fantastic. I even like the fact like when he's in the when he's in the crowd and everyone's like in costume and then yep. like, it's up to you now. And he's like, it's up to me now. And the guy's like, I think that was I didn't mean you. I think that was just a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like how like a lot of times when he thinks he's having an inner dialogue, he's saying it out loud. And yes. People are like, what are looking at him funny? Mm-hmm. And that really just fits the awkwardness of Spider-Man. Yes. And that's another thing that's missed a lot is just how awkward Spider-Man is all the time. I can't remember which book it is, but it's Spider-Man and Spider-Woman are on a rooftop together and they're they're basically spying. They're they're being scouts and and looking at watching something and they're talking and Spider-Man's just being Spider-Man. And Spider-Woman looks at him and she's like, you know, you're really weird and it's kind of creepy. And he looks at her and goes, are we on a date right now? <laughs> and just, just the awkwardness and the weirdness that Spider-Man just always puts forth. And I think they really kind of nailed that down in this movie as well. It's just often missed in uh, any kind of animation or live action. Yeah, like the awkwardness of Miles, even as you alluded to earlier, the awkward bread scene with Peter and MJ. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that aspect, and it goes back to, like, the duality of the Peter Parker-Spider-Man thing. Like, Spider-Man is, like, really cool. Peter Parker is just a dork, and he's really awkward. Right. Uh, and, he, and even Spider-Man, to a certain st- uh, extent, is, is awkward, too. And, and He's just awkward in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And it's it, that kind of just rolls right into the humor of it. I mean, there's, there's so many background quips. And in, in humor in this movie, like I didn't even catch a lot of it, even watching it. I don't know how many times I've seen it now, probably close to 10 times. And there's still little things. I'm like, I hear them saying something and I know it's a quip, but I just can't hear it over everything else that's going on. And I think that really fits the character in general and how he's just always talking, always joking, even no matter how beat up he is, he's always making jokes and, and mocking things. And different characters do it in different ways. Nicolas Cage. How funny was Nicolas Cage in this? Excellent dry humor. Like, I, I, one of his, he had two really cool jokes. Like, when we got, when we got to the spider cave and found that they, the other three spiders were there, and they were like, so how did you guys get here? It's a long story. And then they do it, like, really quickly, and they come back, I guess it wasn't that long of a story. Well, and then they look at him and like, where's that wind coming from? Where I go. The wind follows, and the wind smells like rain. Yes, it was very Nicolas Cage and very Spider-Man noir. It was really awesome. Another thing that he says in this, and it's very easy to miss, but I, I, I caught it, and I just can't stop laughing at it. I don't even remember who he's fighting. It's, it's when the, one of the big fight scenes starts, and he calls a guy, he goes, you hard-boiled turtle slapper, and then starts fighting him. I, I did they write that or did Nick Cage just say it? I don't know. Yeah, because it's like it, it, he has like all these like, what are you all thumbs? Like he has lots of like little like insults he's hurling at the people who he's fighting. That it was really cool. Yeah, and and it just it fits the character, but it's also like I I don't know that they they even wrote anything for Nicolas Cage. They're just like, hey, just be you, and we'll make it fit, and it fit, and it fit really well. 
And then, like, the other, like, deadpan thing that I liked that he did, like, when he would show up at, like, uh, Fisk's, like, party and they're looking down from the skylight, it's like, it can't be this easy, can it? Because all of the waiters are dressed as Spider-Man. It's like, it can't be right. this easy, can it? It's this easy. And it just, like, cuts right to them inside the ballroom dressed as waiters. Like, minor little subtle things like that that were just really, really cool that was slid in there. Right. Well, and there's also, again, the way they kind of tie things together. At the very... The first collider scene when Miles is watching blonde Peter Parker swing up to put the the goober in and just the way that he does it. And he's just like, wow, that's amazing. Then at the end when he does it and the other two, when Spider-Gwen and and Peter B. Parker, Shlubby Spider-Man are watching and they're like, wow. And then Shlubby just kind of looks at Gwen and goes, we taught him that, right? And she goes, I didn't teach him that. You definitely didn't teach him that fantastic humor and just again the way they circle back around to things was was fantastic even like the like the practical advice like when miles asks him for tips he's like disinfect the mask you don't want to put baby powder in the out in especially heavy at the joints (laughs) (laughs) and it's like what else oh that's that's about it yeah i mean there's just so many little things in there and the way that like when they're talking about the plans and how to make the new goober and they just keep coming back to getting a bagel and like even like they're they're hurrying up to get out and he's like and selecting a bagel and all right well look at spider-man oh i get that a lot just that casual but like even like the henchmen when they go to chase him he's still a bagel (laughs) yeah yeah Not that he's carrying a computer and maybe that's important. No, he stole a bagel. <laughs> well, I mean, bagels are important. I actually just ate one about an hour ago. <laughs> I mean, especially a New York bagel. I mean, come on. I've never had one. I don't know. I, I hear they're fantastic. They are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, New York bagels are real bagels. I'm from Boston, but I still have to give a head nod to a New York bagels are the best. Uh, again, little jokes in the in the spider shed, too, like... I think there's a part where, like, as they're going down, he sees the spider mobile. He's like, why would he even need that? And, and just little things like that as they go through. Again, they're very easy to miss. And I think majority of those are for the fans. Oh, yeah. Even, like, when Peter Parker's like, this is a bit pretentious. I feel bad for this guy. Right. He's like, see, mine has a futon over here. And it- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine my place is exactly the same, except lose the plane, the bike, the car. There's a futon over there. the the only one that really i don't i don't remember seeing spider bot really have any jokes like there's a couple of funny moments with like the the computer look on its face but i don't think there's really any jokes with that one no most of her lines were like in the spider cave where they were talking about testing miles could he like handle being spider-man and they had like some quippy stuff, and they were all sneak attack. <laughs> that was the other like Nick Cage thing, sneak attack. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, and just the ongoing confusion for the Rubik's cube. Is this purple? No. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, I don't understand this thing, but I will. And at the very end, you see him. He's he's completed it. Or even things like Spider Hands. It's like, hi, I just washed my hands. That's why they're wet. No other reason. Yeah. Oh, man, it's fantastic. You got a problem with cartoons? Exactly, yes. And just, Yeah. And just the mallet joke. I, I don't know if it... Maybe it's just me, but that mallet joke about it'll fit in your pocket. That was... 
My favorite, my favorite joke though, uh, that was a great joke, but my favorite Spider-Ham related joke probably was, so long folks. And then Peter B. Parker's like, is he allowed to say that like legally? <laughs> and actually my, my favorite is actually probably going back to the, when the introduction, when they're all introducing themselves and they all say bitten by a radioactive spider, but then he says bitten by a radioactive pig. Yes. <laughs> Again, very easy to miss, but it's there. So was he a spider that got bit by a pig or is he a man pig in a spider outfit? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, it was a quick thing that went by. I, mean, cause I don't really know a lot about Spider-Ham, but yeah, that was the fact that that was slid in there as a, as a variation on it. I thought that was funny. The other thing that I liked, it wasn't funny, funny, but the thing that I thought was well done is when earlier in the movie, when Miles gets bitten by the radioactive spider, yep. the very nonchalant way. He's kind of flicks it off, yeah. There's like a pause there. It's like, is this going to be some major dramatic moment? Nope. This flicks, the, <laughs> this flicks the spider off his hand and walks away. Which also kind of mocks, again, did you ever watch the, the 90s Spider-Man cartoon? I did. In fact, that's one of the ones that I have started to rewatch on the Disney Plus service. Because um, they actually... Oh, don't do that to yourself. It'll ruin your, your memories. Yeah, because like, well, one thing is that the animation style is, is bad, but it's from the early 90s. It's kind of like going back and rewatching the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series where I just got it built up so high in my head and I go back and rewatch like, oh, that's not nearly as good as, as I thought it was. Yeah, the the... Most of the stories were good, but the, the weakness of the animation is, is hard to take. Right. And, but uh, where, where I was going with that was uh, in that, when he gets bitten, I mean, they just go, it's like this long, drawn out, like very like stress-filled scene. And they start building up like very, very similar to that. And then just kind of, nope, flick, done. And then when he comes back to it and he's like, you're just a normal spider. See, it's, it's weird how normal you are. And then it glitches out and like, okay, that's not normal. But yeah, th just the humor in general in this was, was fantastic. And then kind of sw swinging back, <laughs> kind of the animation <laughs> style is uh, just the visuals of the web swinging in this and kind of the physics of it, how that they, they show him learning how to web swing and how he's just not quite doing it right. And he like swings straight into a tree and, you know, kept, keeps missing what he's aiming for. And then when he, once he starts getting, getting it and kind of showing how jerky it is and how kind of they end up going side to side instead of straight forward. And, you know, if he goes a little bit low, he has to run along the ground and kind of jump back up at the end. And I just think they do a very good job. I, a lot of times they don't show the realistic, if they were to try to web swing like that, what would it actually be? And they started building that into the games more. Uh, but I think they they really focused in on the animation of that in this movie and i think that was just another one of those details that was fantastic yeah i like the fact that they took the bus to hudson valley yeah you know, tried to web swing there that was funny but i also like the fact that like in that sequence when they're running away peter b parker really quickly tries to run down okay here's all of the things you have to do to web swing correctly yeah miles is like that's too much stuff and he's like then stop listening to me <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Again, just kind of comes back to those details. And man, I've got so many notes that it's hard to even look through them to to pinpoint the things to talk about. But 
I, I just think that that's something that's missed a lot. Uh, when you, when you try to go into a lot of different stories and versions, pulling from comic books and, and really just movies and, and cartoons and stuff in general, it, it's very easy to miss a lot of those details when you're focused just on a story or just on a character. And I think, uh, again, going back to just their fans and they're looking at all the aspects of it. And I just, I think they got everything right. I, I don't think they glossed over anything and they made sure that they took the time to build it correctly and to pay attention to all the minor details. And that's what makes this movie again, going from it could have just been a good movie, but it ended up a great movie. I even like, uh, there's again, it's, it's only for the nerds, but at the very beginning, they show the comic code authority stamp and most people aren't going to understand what that is, but that was a fantastic nod to the comic books. Yeah. There's, there's so much to this movie. Like you said, if you're comic fans, you you'll really love it. If you're not, even if you're not even that much into Spider-Man, even the live action movies, I was like, this, this is just a great movie for, for everybody. This works on so many different levels. I really can't find any faults with the movie. Uh, one of the things I did kind of like is it, it's eh, kind of a weird thing, I guess, for, for physics. Like some people have like complained that Miles was wearing his sneakers while he was clinging to the wall. And this has been dealt with different ways in the past. I didn't like what they did in like the first live action Spider-Man movies. They tried to make it out that he had like literal spider-like like fibers off growing off of his hands and feet and that's how he actually stuck to the wall where in other parts of the comics it was more of a physics thing like a near object atomic attraction so he could actually climb walls even though he didn't have to be in his bare feet or a suit so it was okay for miles to be able to cling to surfaces even when he was wearing sneakers well if they're going to be upset about that then what about when peter b parker walks up the building and then just kind of jumps sideways off of the top to the roof when when they're in the alley and they're both like walking up and down the building yes talking to each other and he just kind of walks up and jump he literally jumps up sideways and then falls sideways to land on the roof yeah they should have had i mean they should have had him actually use like like web to pull himself in that direction right. and that would have been more realistic all I'm saying is they're going to be upset about the sneakers thing. I think that's going to be a little bit worse than the sneakers. Oh, yeah. There are definitely times where, I mean, that happens in like all of the movies where you just have to like go with it because it, this would be a little bit over the top to get all of the physics right and stuff like that. But I did like that there were various times throughout the movie where the quick change of direction was done by throwing a spider web and pulling. Yeah. yeah. Or having like one of the other spiders do that for them because it would be very unrealistic in some of the action sequence for them to be able to change direction and momentum so quickly without someone, either either them pulling on one of their own webs or someone else flinging a web at them and pulling them away that made that. So they did pay attention to that level of detail uh, in other areas that was interesting. Yeah, another really interesting thing involving webs, I don't know if you caught it, like at the very end when it's kind of showing the multiverse universe and how all of it's webbed together. Yeah. It goes through like all of the different colors and it's all like spider webs phasing in and out of different colors. Is that what you mean? 
No, I mean like at the at the, at the very end it, where it's kind of showing like a world and man, it's it's been a little bit since I watched it. I don't remember exactly how it goes, but basically it's like almost like it's panning out through the universe. Oh, okay. And all the different worlds are webbed together. Gotcha. And again, it's it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention because it's at the end. I think it's actually during the credits. So it's easy to just kind of stop paying attention and not look at it. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's an interesting thing too. And I think that's part of what they're building up to more of this series. Yeah, I'm not really sure exactly where the sequel's going to go, but they kind of alluded to it because it seemed to be like sort of a, a multiverse phone call that Gwen calls Miles at the very end. So I don't know what the what they're going to do with the... How do you get to the multiverse in the next one with the the collider being out of the picture? But it should be interesting to see. Plus also, I mean, they also made a good point of pointing out that Gwen is 15 months older Mm -hmm. than Miles, but they're close enough in age that I don't know if they're going to try to make them the new Peter MJ thing, but it's at least possible that they could have a romance or they could just stay friends. Yeah, they left it open to be possible. Yeah, so I, I thought it was well done in that regard because they also they didn't have to worry about the romantic element was more the Peter MJ story with him going back, the Peter B. Parker going back to MJ at the end. They didn't have to have that as a, a component of the Miles character. Well, with that, I think uh, unless you got anything else, you want to jump into our uh, closing? Yeah, I think I'm ready for that. You want to go first? Sure. Uh, mine's going to be pretty brief. For me, my, my metaphorical rating for this was it's a custom-built web shooter. This movie is perfectly made. It's true to the characters. It functions seamlessly. And I, I just hope they don't run out of web fluid as they move forward. <laughs> well, my metaphorical rating is it was a well-versed Spidey sensation. <laughs> I really think that the the movie works for all audiences. You know, it doesn't require you to know anything about Spider-Man, even though it's probably best if you do, but you don't have to. It's also amazing to me how much story is packed into one movie, showing that you can draw on a lot of, and even previously unused comic book material, to tell an amazing story without it having to be like the culmination of dozens of live-action movies like they did with the MCU Avengers saga. I'm not saying that what they did with Avengers is bad, but the fact that they were able to do this, like one of the things that DC has been bad at is trying to rush to the Justice League by not building it up enough. This was kind of like a a new character and a team-up movie all at once without having to have separate like a separate Spider-Gwen movie, a separate Spider-Noir movie, a separate Spider-Ham movie. So it was like a mini team-up all at once. So the fact that they were able to do all of that in one movie and have it not be like busy and confusing to people is just amazing to me. It's probably a formula that's not really going to be easy to replicate. It probably would be bad to try to replicate it, but I would really like to see more comic book and superhero movies go into their animated verse and do something like this. Well, I think the reason that it works here where it might not work in other areas is because they introduce the characters and they use the characters, but they're not necessarily setting it up that all those characters are going to be used going forward. Yes. And that's one of the other things that is kind of bad, not bad, but a downside to some of the team-up movies like Avengers and Justice League. You have some minor characters that are useful in the team-ups, but you don't really need to spend that much time or any time with them as an individual character. 
Come on, give Hawkeye some love. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, what, we don't need a Hawkeye movie. At least they haven't done that. But like, even like, I mean, I don't know. Ant Man is funny, so I, I like the Ant Man movies. But I mean, there are some characters that you don't need necessarily to have a, a standalone movie for. Just because you don't need it doesn't mean it can't be good. Oh yeah, I'm not saying don't do it or that they can't be good. But I just think that this is another way of showing, like you said, we don't need to have like a separate Spider-Noir. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Nicolas Cage would probably f- be phenomenal in either an animated or even a live action version of Spider-Noir. So I'm not saying don't do it. But the fact that they were able to have a character that good in this movie without any previous, unless you're a Spider-Man nerd and you, you were familiar with the comics. Holy crap, he really could do a live-action version of that really well. He really could. I mean, the, the Spider-Noir character is actually, because it's set in like the 1930s, so I mean, it's, it's like a historical thing, and you really could do it without it really needing to do all of like the physics-defying right. animation is better than live-action stuff we talked about earlier. You could do a really kick-ass live-action Spider-Man Noir with Nicolas Cage. Right, and like you said, it's made in the 30s, and Nicolas Cage hasn't aged since the 30s. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mind, mean to take you on a tangent there. Go ahead and finish up your thoughts. No, I mean, that, that was just my thought. It's like, again, the whole thing, I know it, it's not going to work for, for every comic book property. I mean, but I don't mean like, let's do everything like Batman into the Batverse and, or Green Lantern into the Green Lanternverse or something. I mean, but there are other approaches, I think, something similar to this that... A feature film animation for some of the other comic book superheroes, I think, would be a way to go. If not a movie, also for television series like we've talked about before, sometimes that's better for serial stories in this space. Yeah, the doors are wide open. Yeah, so I'm not going anti-live action with uh, comic book superheroes, but it's just like, for me, animation is the way to go. Agreed. I've been saying that for years. This is Jim. This episode is dedicated to our assistant podcast editor, Marty, my beloved cat, who sadly but peacefully passed away in late January. I called Marty our assistant podcast editor because every time I sat down to edit an episode, she sat next to me in a cat bed right next to my computer. And in fact, this episode was the last episode that she ever helped me edit. Furthermore, since winter weather prevented me from traveling to Mike's house to record this episode, hopefully you couldn't tell, but we recorded this remotely. We were actually talking on our mobile phones with headsets on and recording our side of the conversation on our computers. I then sat down and edited those two separate recordings together into the episode that you just listened to. Not only did Marty help with the beginning of that editing effort, but she also sat next to me in her cat bed for the entirety of the recording of this episode as well. So not only was she the assistant podcast editor for this episode, she was also a special, albeit mostly silent, guest host helping us during the recording. So as you might imagine, this was a rather difficult episode for me to finish the editing on. In a strange way, however, it's somehow comforting that this Spider-Man movie, like we just discussed, is probably my all-time favorite Spider-Man movie. And Spider-Man, as we've discussed previously on this podcast, 
is my all-time favorite comic book superhero. So perhaps it's fitting that every time I think about not only this podcast episode, but also that movie, I'll think about Marty and all the help that she gave me, not just with the podcast, but with my life. Marty used to sleep next to my pillow at night, and most nights as we were falling asleep, I would pet her and I would recite a little mantra to her as she purred. Thankfully, I got to say these same words to her at the doctor's office the morning that she passed peacefully. And I would like to close with those words. You are Marty. You are a good kitty. You are loved. You are Marty. You are a good kitty. You are loved. Good night, beautiful girl. Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at Fanboy and Hater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater.